Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Angelina Gualdoni is an artist living and working in Brooklyn. She was born in San Francisco and got her BFA from MICA and her MFA from the University of Illinois at Chicago. She also attended the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in 2000. She's had solo exhibitions at Asia Geisberg, Kavi Gupta, the St. Louis Art Museum, the MCA in Chicago, amongst others. She's had group shows at Zola Lieberman, Lama Dodd, Bowling Green, the Nerman Museum, the Queens Museum, Susan Inglet, the Orlando Museum of Art, and many more. She's received a NIFA Award grant, a Pollock Krasner grant, and has been a resident at the ISCP and the McDowell Colony, amongst other residencies. She's been featured in the Boston Globe, Art Critical, The Huffington Post, Two Coats of Paint, The New York Times, Artnet, and many more. Angelina is also a co-founder of Regina Rex Gallery. Her work is in the collection of the MCA in Chicago, the Nerman Museum, and the Saatchi Collection. She's taught for many years and is currently teaching at the School of the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. I stopped by Angelina's bed studio and we talked about the Chicago music scene, adjusting to New York, co-founding the Regina Rex Gallery, and her diverse approach to painting. Here's our conversation. back to September is actually a painting it's that one it's that I started maybe in 2009 mm-hmm. and it was a painting that was kind of during a phase where I was doing almost like strictly abstract field painting mm-hmm. and it went out into the world and it came back and it was the first painting that I had introduced a pattern onto or one of the first it was maybe the second so it kind of had this sentimental value to me mm-hmm. but not any other kind of value uh, where I knew that it, it wasn't going to go back out into the world but I also kind of didn't have the heart to unstretch it or destroy it and so eventually I kind of just put it up and started working back on it which is something um, that I really never do um, but because I kind of just allowed it to sit and ferment and be an available surface, mm-hmm. I've been able to kind of try other things out on it. So it's become kind of uh, very much like grounds for discovery yeah. <laughs> in that painting. Do you think that's something you're going to do more often now is like pull paintings from the past and rework them? Or is it is that kind of a one-time thing? I, I don't know. I don't have that many paintings from the past still stretched but I do save them they're all rolled up there so maybe so but generally I I like to be a bit more specific with um, my patterns now than I was then so I I think it's I think that's its main quality is actually that of just that I didn't care about it maybe as much as others you know so I I just let myself take some little chances Yeah. yeah Well, one thing I noticed about your work from over the years is that you you do navigate through a lot of different ways of making a painting. I do. Is that is it as groupy as it seems like on on like catalog in catalog where you'll work through a series and then work on another series? Or are they kind of working at the same time? I'm I'm glad that it might appear that way <laughs> from the outside. Well, it's categorized very neatly online, you know, and looking at the site and seeing mm-hmm. that work. Yeah. But is it kind of all mashed together? It is. Yeah. It is. Um, my work is very much about being in several places at once. Mm-hmm. And um, often, even within my studio, there will be pieces that might feel like they align more with like a future body of work or a previous yeah. body body of work um, and I've, I've kind of like 
been vexed by that because my work has inside my head like in making work it it feels like a logical spiral Mm -hmm. you know like where I've gone through several different passages but I keep coming back around to similar kind of things or similar ideas but I think if you don't see my work uh, regularly, mm-hmm. then the comment that I get a lot is like, "Oh, it's changed so totally much. different." You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of live a little bit in in fear now because, um, like, on, on one hand, there's there's a permission that I give myself to utilize all of these different painting strategies mm-hmm. and different image making strategies, but uh, it it seems to really throw people for a loop, and so. I, I think right now I'm trying to think in greater detail about specificity and construction and specificity and reference mm-hmm. and, and sort of kind of keep things hanging together. Yeah. Have you, well, I mean, it, it, there seems to be a similar sensibility with the way you're painting, you mm-hmm. know, or like there's like a hand in there, even yeah. though the representation can kind of fade in and out or yeah. the expression can fade in and out, but it seems like the hand is is there I think to a savvy viewer they can understand that but yeah. I guess yeah if someone doesn't see your work in five years mm-hmm. and then sees new work they might think wow this is totally different 180 exactly. yeah <laughs> have you always been that way to where you'd like to tackle a lot of different ways of approaching something yeah well my art like grandfather mm-hmm. um who who has been like my art daddy you know, since the very beginning has been Sigmar Polka. Oh, yeah. And so I, you know, I, I saw his paintings first in like 1993 in my very first trip to New York. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I thought they were ugly. They were annoying. They were raucous. There was too much. They were decorative. Like yeah. they, they kind of really stuck in my craw. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't shake them. Like I kept thinking about them. Right. And um, the, it, it kind of... Uh, again, there was a permission, there was a humor, there was a magic mm-hmm. to the way that he was synthesizing or kind of putting together all of these different image-making strategies. Yeah. And um, so when I started really thinking seriously about what I wanted to do with painting, um, in in graduate school or in looking at graduate schools like that was kind of a guiding principle and i wanted to have a way that i could access multiple uh multiple iterations of staining of drawing and of synthesizing all of these to put an image together mm-hmm. now i didn't know that quite as specifically in that moment but i did know that i liked that way of painting enough that um it it drew me to a postcard that I saw in uh, the Mount Royal building at MICA of Carrie James Marshall's work mm-hmm. uh, in a show where, you know, he sent the postcard, it was up on a bulletin board, and I was like, here is another painter who is utilizing multiple language, multiple languages in one painting. Yeah. And I really liked what he was doing. And... I knew he was teaching at UIC, and I was going to look at SEIC for graduate school, and a family friend said, oh, you should look at UIC too. And I did, and um, I was impressed with uh, the small scale of the program, it was definitely affordable, and to have the opportunity to work with him Mm -hmm. was really kind of one of the things that uh, lured me there. Um, So how was it? Uh, the first year was awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, didn't like, go according to the oh plan. Oh my god! <laughs> I thought I knew, and I did not know what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, like like a lot of people, and it, whether intentionally or not, it it did have that vibe of like we're gonna break you down, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the teachers there thought of it that way. Um. But it was very rigorous, mm-hmm. you know, where Micah was wonderful. And I met some of my closest friends who were incredibly inspiring and are still doing amazing work uh, there. But the critical vibe um, of the people that I was working with was very much like, you go with your funky self, you yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> and, a little freer. And when I got to UIC, even the question of, 
well, why should this be a painting? Mm -hmm. I had never been asked that before. Yeah. And so to think that like there, there was still something to the discussion that could be had in a painting or that painting had to in some way speak um, intentionally about its relationship both to images and to the history of painting, mm -hmm. that was totally new and that yeah. stupefied me. And I just kind of like flailed for the first year. Um, and I didn't even fail in interesting ways. I just made really mediocre <laughs> work, <laughs> kind of desperately, desperately seeking content, desperately yeah. seeking like, you know, anything that felt like it was important to say or personal to me. And it was it all forced? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I almost dropped out. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and then also the experience of like really wanting to impress Carrie and yeah. some other faculty members and just falling flat on my face. Oh. I mean, it was it was so dispiriting. And Carrie is brilliant and he can basically disassemble a painting practice in a few strokes. Yeah. Like it is it is so incisive, his critique. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I almost left school like halfway through. Uh, but my advisor, uh, Susan Sensman, sat me down and, and kind of looped me back in. And, mm -hmm. and she was a great advocate. And, and she, you know, made me stay. And I'm so glad I did because that summer was actually pivotal. I kind of met this person who was like a talisman in my life. Mm -hmm. I just kind of got a lot happier and I kind of let some things go. And I'd also like worked on this Saul LeWitt installation at Rona Hoffman where I'd learned how to tape and that was like I loved taping so much I loved like pulling that tape off and yeah. clean clean edge I was addicted to that it's seductive it is <laughs> <laughs> and um, then I kind of went back in between these kind of relationships that I was cultivating and some new techniques that I was using, mm -hmm. all of a sudden things started to come together very, very quickly in my paintings. And they jumped from field painting to um, perspectival space, mm -hmm. to representational space, to architecture, to modernist architecture. Mm -hmm and down to Oscar Niemeyer and Buckminster Fuller in very quick order. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'd kind of found form, like kind of how to speak with paint and how to weave form and content together. And the very first time that Carrie let me know that I had done that intentionally and well, I felt like my head was going to explode. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I got a compliment. As good as the good was compared yeah. to the bad in the first year. When you uh, when you moved from Micah to UIC, that's a pretty big shift, just kind of provincially, you know, mm -hmm. because of Maryland's proximity to a lot of other places. Whereas Chicago's a real specific town. Did you in that first year? Did you like Chicago? Was it working? No, I never. I never intended to live in Chicago. I grew up in St. Louis, mm -hmm. and. Um, when I left to go to Micah in Baltimore, I was kind of like, enough of the Midwest. I don't want to yeah. come back here. I really liked the East Coast. Mm -hmm. um, and so Chicago was, to me, a, a larger version of St. Louis um, in that time. And I, I had some friends there from high school, and actually a bunch of us from Micah went there mm -hmm. kind of all together. So I had a small community already established, which was helpful. But I didn't really love the communities that I was finding there. And, and UIC was a very commuter-based school. A lot of the people going to grad school there were already married or, you know, just kind of older. It, it wasn't really the art school experience that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And then the indie rock scene was, uh, I don't know. I, I had a lot of friends who were very in it. Um, but it was always even almost more awkward than the art world, my right. like, interaction with it. Yeah. What had a big, there was a bigger stake there, right? With yeah. the music. Yeah. So what was some of the, what was the scene like there? Well, you know, uh, this, what the scene was like was probably very much filtered through um, my 
interest in meeting guys at yeah. that time, you mm-hmm. know? So, you know, if I'd go to the drag city scene, like I was not the hot rocker babe, you know? <laughs> and so uh, the indie rock guys are not really interested in me. And at that point I was not as confident, like I was a little bit shyer and quieter, right. you know? Um, and, and so that, that was just like, I don't know there was like a lot of pretense a lot of desire for attention and a, and a lot of um awkwardness even amongst those who didn't want to be rock stars but just wanted to be involved you know i, I yeah. think we're all fundamentally awkward right. people and it just kind of would set up these barriers to having you know meaningful relationships or conversation but there were other scenes other music scenes that i ended up being totally transformative like Mm -hmm. this person that I met um, who was my talisman introduced me to uh, this bar called Danny's that's Mm -hmm. in Wicker Park where they'd have these soul night Mm -hmm. dances and they were DJed um, by my friend Colin's roommate Dante as well as um, he had this whole crew, the Supreme Court, Cortland was on it, other people that worked at Reckless. Mm-hmm. And they would bring in these amazing collections of Funk and Soul 45s. Yeah. I mean, these guys are making mixed tapes with like 10 second you know, breaks that yeah. they're sending to Jurassic 5 and LA mm-hmm. and Cut Chemist. And I'd like, these are the people sourcing all the records that you're hearing other DJs cut from. Right, yeah. And then they'd come and just do these dance parties at Danny's. And Danny's used to be a residence, like an apartment, so it's really tiny. Mm-hmm. And they're just like four or five rooms. And it's it's just, it's packed. And you go and you get sweaty and you dance to this incredible music. Yeah. And I had so much fun. I would drink way too much (laughs) not because I wanted to get more drunk but I just didn't want to leave and it seemed that I just needed to keep going yeah you gotta hydrate (laughs) (laughs) you're sweating that much yeah so that part of the music scene Mm -hmm. was magical to me what year is this that was like 99 2000 Mm -hmm. you know that's like that's an epic time for music in Chicago too I know I mean we had like you know, Tortoise and Stereolab. And I know I had friends who built out Soma. And, you know, so there's a lot going on. And and then, like, improvisational music as as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where, you know, my husband and partner Woody kind of, like, was going to see a lot of electronic music and improvisational jazz there as well. Yeah, because the band I was in recorded our record there in 2000. Mm -hmm. And um, I have so many friends who you know, moved to Chicago and played music. And, um, yeah, it was a good a good time. It was yeah. kind of a fever pitch there at, in Chicago at that time. It was so much fun. Those were probably some of the years in my life where I had the most fun. Yeah, and it seems like the, the art scene there was almost over, not overshadowed, but, you know, the, the music scene was so big and was oh, gaining yeah. so much attention. Yeah. So, and you even have people like Sam Prekop who are artists. Yes. Who you find out about some Chicago art through the music. Yes. You know, yeah. which is funny. Yeah. Uh, the total flip of, like, New York. You know? <laughs> it's not, you know what I mean? And, uh-huh. you know, like, you'll have, you know, artists who also play music inside, in, you know, side bands or whatever. Yeah. It's just yeah. a different vibe. So that must have been exciting. I mean, that's creative energy nonetheless, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, like, yeah, some of my fondest memories. Like, I do have fond memories of Chicago because of the people that I met and because of events like that. Yeah. But the city itself, like, oh, God, fuck that winter. It's so awful. Yeah. It just does not end. It's brutal. It does not end. <laughs> um, it's lake effect yeah. all winter long. Yeah. And then it's also just a, it's a very gray city. I remember that color, you know, in... April and May mm-hmm. when it's still not warm and things still aren't growing right and everything is just beige and brown and sooty and salty and yeah you know like it's relentlessly dull year after year it does it too it's like yeah yeah and it, I'm from Pittsburgh it's not it's not quite as brutal I think but it's gray yeah you know you get kind of used to that kind of gray cloudy day after day yeah <laughs> 
When you were at uh, UIC, were you familiar with an artist named Jeremy Boyle? Yes. Yeah, no, he was a year ahead of me, and he is such a sweetheart. Right? Yeah. Everyone adores him. And he fuses music and his art. He does. Pretty amazingly. He does. And was in Joan of Arc when they started. Yes. So Jeremy was a really, really good friend of mine in high school. Oh, my God. We used to skateboard he, together. Wait, wait, wait. My connection to Jeremy, I haven't thought about this in so long, actually goes further back, though, mm-hmm. because Jeremy was not only at UIC at the same time that I was, but he was also at Washington University yes, he was. That's at the right. same time that I was. Yes. So after you went to high school with him, he mm-hmm. came to college with me, Yeah. and then, yeah, back in yeah. grad school again. Small world. Yeah. Yeah, and so Jeremy was, you know, involved in that music scene. And then another friend of mine that I went to high school with, a video artist named Todd Mate was in Joan of Arc at that time and yeah. he was living there with a bunch of other friends. So yeah. and when I when I was going to graduate school, I got into the Art Institute mm-hmm. and then I got into Yale and it was kind of like this choice in my life. Mm-hmm. It was like a fork in the road. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if I go to Chicago, it's just going to be music because I have so many <laughs> friends there who play music. Uh-huh. You know, I, yeah. I'm just going to do that and probably not make art much. Yeah. It'll just take over my life because yeah. I was even... You know, I was making music in undergraduate school, and I felt like if I go somewhere where there's a real fertile environment mm-hmm. for that, and if I go to art school there, I'm not even going to play music. I yeah. mean, I'm going to make art that much. I'm probably going to be playing music the whole time. So I felt like, well, if I go to New Haven, there's nothing that gets, I'm just going to focus on art. Right. So I did that, found a couple people there, started a band, ended up recording in Chicago anyways, on the <laughs> Chicago record label. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, like I figured that was my way out, but I ended up still doing it. Which record label? Aesthetics, they're called. Okay. It's a smaller um, record label that was, they're no longer, but they put out like Isotope 217, Got and, it, yeah. you know, Designer and yeah. uh, Lultra. My friend Joe was in a band called Lultra. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so it was a bunch of local Chicago people. Yeah. But yeah, that was my Chicago days. But Jeremy was, you know, an amazing artist, and I think he's that that perfect blend of music and art together. And a total workaholic. Yeah. That guy works so hard. When we were kids, um, I would go to his house, and he his room. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. He doesn't mind. He's not listening. Um, his room was just a. It looked like. Francis Bacon studio almost. It was just a disaster, but it was all these things that he would take apart Uh and like clocks or whatever he had, he would like take it apart and like put them back together again. And like back then I thought, that's kind of strange. He's like really into taking things apart and building his own versions of things. And of course that's what he does in his artwork because it's on the epic scale. It was really cool to see that transition of time and like something that's like a little hobby when you're younger and how it can become, you know, what you want to do in your life yeah you know? yeah so when you were in chicago i mean the second year was better yes much much better it must have went by quick though because the grad school goes by really fast right it, two years it did but but really like that that second year you know like it it felt almost like every second or third painting that i made got more specific and got more interesting and Mm -hmm. I was clarifying kind of what was interesting to me or what I had to say about certain kinds of modernist architecture and I was learning a lot at the same time um so it was it was just very accelerated in terms of progress and so that was kind of thrilling you know to then come out and feel like oh like I've got my my territory now Mm -hmm. you know like like and um, yeah, and it ended up like Chicago ended up being a really good decision for me. You know, there were there were parts of me that um, regretted not moving to New York after undergrad, like some of my friends did, mm-hmm. but only in the way that like they have some really epic stories about parties they went to or what <laughs> shitty lofts they right, went to. Right. <laughs> but because I was in Chicago post grad, I was really able to support myself with you know nominal amounts of work and spend time in the studio and Mm -hmm. develop work out of graduate school and I also had like a good network there um, that kind of made it possible for me to show work pretty early on and start establishing that kind of a track record yeah so um, it, it was it was a very 
pragmatic and useful, you know, kind of period as well. Yeah. So whenever you were about to graduate, did you know right away East Coast? No, no. And I actually stayed in Chicago for another five years. Five years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. After that. Um, because I... You I, like those winners that much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't feel ready yet yeah. for New York, you know? I yeah. certainly wasn't financially ready, you know? Like, yeah, because what year did you move here? 2005. Yeah, so even it's starting to get pretty pricey yeah. at that point. Yeah, um, So yeah, I, I stayed and, and I showed, and I kind of started just building so mm-hmm. that, you know, over those years, I, I had a couple of solo shows and some, some of those in other cities, some in Europe. And, um, and it was also kind of like I had, I just had the very good grace to kind of be born at a certain time where I graduated from school at a certain time mm-hmm. where people were really interested in emerging art yeah. and collecting emerging art. Um, and so I was able to kind of ride that wave you know until 2008 with a lot of other people yeah um and that allowed me for you know i was kind of adjunct teaching and working for another artist and you were teaching in chicago yeah where did you teach at columbia college Mm -hmm. northwestern did you enjoy it i did yeah i did teaching really made me it gave me a confidence that I didn't have before because mm-hmm. I had to continually explain why certain things are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> right. The verbalize that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of also opened a lot of windows onto understanding um, other people, other people's needs, mm-hmm. and also what it means to develop a voice as a teacher because right. I think when I came into teaching my idol was Carrie mm-hmm. and Carrie was very much a kind of my experience was like my best teacher broke me down and then I rebuilt myself with yeah. his aid you know and multiple mm-hmm. other people as well and therefore this is what I must do to freshman undergraduates at Columbia College. I mean, it was ridiculous. I'm sure it was horrible. (laughs) And eventually I kind of learned like, oh, this voice is not my voice. Mm -hmm. And these students are not They're not ready. And they're not ready. They're not ready ready for that. And it's not appropriate. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so then understanding better not only how to facilitate development in young people, but who I am as a teacher and how to access and present that right. has been, um, yeah, something that I still think a lot about. That was kind of like you got through the major leagues and you got to your first team and you were coached and like you, it was like the deep end of the pool. And then you went to a softball game later on and just started yelling <laughs> at people like major league <laughs> coach. Totally. Like, whoa, easy. <laughs> Totally, yeah. It's it's funny though because there's different, and you, I'm sure you know, in teaching too, there's different artists who are in different stages, and you have to be sort of attuned to that with everyone. Like this person needs more sort of like you know a harder coaching line here, mm-hmm. and like a little more mm-hmm. you know instigation to work, yeah. and a little more discipline. And some people need almost like more coddling or like more support just yes. to keep them functioning and getting stronger through like a positive app you know yeah it's it's so difficult because it's not like you walk in and teach a class Mm-mm. you don't just walk in and teach the plan or whatever mm-hmm. it's you're navigating like 20 different personalities and trying to get the most out of all these different people it is mental it's, gymnastics but people hear that you teach art and they're like oh that must be you know, yeah. like you just immediately know they're like, oh, that's not real. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what makes it hard. It's not, it's it's yeah. totally, you know, uh, fluid and subjective and, and not quite so A plus B equals C. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a little bit easier that way in an undergraduate situation because the objectives are usually clearer, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's and I've gotten better over the years at 
kind of both being at, at the coaching and therapist aspects mm-hmm. while delineating very clearly I know about painting and yeah. objects and that's what I'm here to help you do mm-hmm. and I see that you might be struggling with other things and here are some other people that can help you with that yeah. because I'm not trained right, right. to do that that's not your repertoire <laughs> yeah I can help your objects yeah. <laughs> I can be yeah. your painting doctor right. but I can't be your other doctors yeah I know it's it's that is a difficult part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with graduate students, the only thing is they're usually on their way a little more, so you can focus yeah. in on that conversation, which is yeah, you know, nice. When I was at Micah, I definitely felt, you know, there there were some superstars there that I was, uh, you know, that were my friends and that I was studying alongside of that really showed me what it meant to be obsessed in the studio Mm -hmm. and showed me that devotion and showed me those hours. And I I feel in a way I walked away probably with more valuable information from them uh, than I did from the classes or instructors. Yeah. It's like a way of life you're learning. Yeah. Yeah. And I always kind of felt like, you know, okay, they're the superstars and then the really good people and I'm maybe like the third or fourth ring out, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but some of those people who I thought were, they definitely were and probably are more talented than I am, but they just made different choices mm-hmm. and that's cool too. Right. Like, you know, different priorities, different needs from your life as, as it evolves, but... It's, it's that thing of wanting this life that, and, and the persistence of it that I feel is more the, the deciding factor yeah, in the end. Definitely. Yeah, well, there's the kids who are really talented at sports or other things too, you know, and people look at them like, oh, this person's a superstar. They should just do this. But then yeah. at a certain point, maybe they're not, even though they're gifted technically at it, mm-hmm. Maybe it's, they don't have the passion, but you'll have the other people who are okay technically, but are just grinders. Like they just work and work and work and work, you know, and then they, that makes you better. That makes you, it's just, you're impassioned. And I think that comes out in work, you know, it's like people can feel that if there's a real passion for it, you know? So you moved after five years, Mm -hmm. you moved to New York. Mm -hmm. And so how was, was it a tough transition? No, it was the best transition yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I waited till the right time um, at, at that point um, I was doing really well with my work mm-hmm. uh, I was doing the Dead Mall series mm-hmm. and those paintings um, they were I don't want to say they were how do I say this I, I had a very high batting average at mm-hmm. that time like I knew what I was doing staining a painting and I would go to these sites and I would photograph and I'd look back at these photographs and if I got like eight good photographs, I'd be like, bingo, there's my next, there's you know, painting. five or six months of work. Yeah. Got it. Now I can just be in the studio and do this stuff. Right. Um, so I, I knew my process. I had my content. Um, I was having a lot of exhibition opportunities and I was selling enough to support myself mm-hmm. for four years in New York. Yeah. Like, that's an amazing thing that yeah. I got to do that. So um, I got to Clinton Hill in 2005, and I loved that neighborhood yeah. so, so much. Um, it, I mean, I grew up in St. Louis um, watching Sesame Street and The Cosby Show, yeah. and this kind of seemed like I... I, I mean, and I know this sounds terrible, but it felt like I knew this place through those shows. Right, yeah. And, you know, the Brooklyn Brownstone and just kind of like a, what at that point was still a not overly, you know, not as gentrified. It was on its way. Um, but it was an integrated an integrated community like there there were a lot of black owned businesses there mm-hmm. still at that point which disappeared about two or three years after I got there yeah and we also got priced out of that neighborhood pretty mm-hmm. quickly you know classic New York story yeah um, did you have a studio where you lived no I I had a studio uh for about two months on Keep Street yeah. right by the Lorimer stop mm-hmm. And that was too small. And then I landed in the 94 Ninth Street mm-hmm. studio in Gowanus, yeah. right next to Lowe's, uh, which is now going to be a fun retail slash 
high-tech office workspace. Oh, really? Which is hilarious, given yeah. that it's still right on the banks of the Gowanus, and there's still a lot of methadone addicts like, right around there, but <laughs> the march of gentrification will not be stopped. No. Um, and then after that, I kind of jumped around. Like I did a, uh, the International Studio and Curatorial Program yeah. here uh, in like 2009, and following that, I moved into the 1717 Troutland Building, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, and then after that here. So that's what led you, being at 1717, you met the Regina Rex people? Like, you did you sort of form that, or did you come yeah. on once it was already up and running? How did that work out? That, um, I, you know, Eric Benson and Ezra Johnson built out the studio space because mm-hmm. um, they had just gotten out of the Sharp program and were looking to, you know, to, to kind of bunk together their studios. And, um, you know, the views were amazing yeah. in that building. Yeah. Like, you could see all of Manhattan from, mm-hmm. like, the Bronx down to the financial district. It was stunning. Um, and, and I had known Eric, and so he got in contact with me, and I was like, yeah, sign me up. Um, and... The space, and this is, you know, this is the tragedy and and kind of things repeating. Like, the reason space was open, that they could build it out, was because uh, there were artists living and working in there prior to us that were kicked out by the fire department that might have been called by the landlord, you know, knowing that they would be evicted. And they were living there, basically. Yeah, yeah, but the landlord was terrible there. Um... But so there were a bunch of people that were kicked out, a bunch of new people moved in, building only workspaces. And so I had my space there. And then a couple of people that I knew from UIC who had gone there after me moved into an, another space. And they divided it up into three studios, mm-hmm. two small ones with windows and one large interior one. And they were trying to decide whether to make that another studio or an exhibition space. And Chicago has such a kind of strong tradition of artist-run basement, garage, yeah. gallery, apartment spaces mm-hmm. that they just kind of floated the the word that they were, you know, hey, does anybody want to get together and do this? And I got an email and went to, I think, the second meeting mm-hmm. or so. And by the third meeting, it, it shook down to the 12 people who really formed it for the next three or four years. And it, it was kind of a, a magical confluence because it felt like in retrospect, like we were kind of like, you know, Voltron or something coming yeah. together, <laughs> like the Ocean's Eleven of yeah. like gallery people. Like we had... A really, you know, we had a really great writer. We had a really good web person. We had like two really good carpenters. We had some people who were like extremely detail oriented in terms of space. We had some people who are excellent networkers and, you know, some people who just reliably show up. And that's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that uh, is Art World Voltron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all you need. Right. That, that sort of recipe. And so. The fact that there were as many of us as there were um, is like herding cats. Mm-hmm. But we all kind of passed through Chicago, and most of us passed through UIC. And so we were kind of informed by a similar graduate student experience, and I yeah. think we kind of prized very similar things in artwork. So it didn't make it too contentious in terms of who or what to show mm-hmm. and uh but but even given that like it was always impossible to um actually uh articulate a mission statement because we'd kind of like oh we don't want to say this or we don't want to do that like yeah. there's a lot of arguing and so the only rule eventually was the like which came out of like occupy was kind of the like block the over my dead body yeah. like if we show this piece of work i will leave the group Right. (laughs) (laughs) and if someone threw that it was just kind of like okay we we can't we can't do this that's the filibuster (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's good to have one of those in effect i guess it has to be very severe yeah so everyone's on the same page exactly and and you understand that like outside of throwing the block you know you 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 voice your opinion and Mm -hmm. and then there are other things that you let go you're like well yeah, you know, 
this person, you know, like this person obviously feels passionate about it or it makes sense. It might not be, you know, what I would pick, but, right. you know. Well, I'd imagine that that experience only affected or affects your, your work or your your relationship with making art and just in the sense that you have a bigger social community, right? And Absolutely. you're engaged and looking and you're just... It's a broader dialogue, which I think is always useful for artists. Yes, yes. And and also as kind of transplants, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so many of us coming from Chicago, it, it gave us a way to insert ourselves into like the Brooklyn dialogue. Yeah. And then also, you know, to meet people who would write for the rail, you know, mm-hmm. and to meet other artists in the building and, um, and also to provide... Um, space for people whose work that we thought was deserving and underrepresented and it, it has been really powerful just to see like and to feel like you could say no like we shouldn't be talking about this we need to be talking about this you know mm-hmm. or this person and so you feel like you can you know have at least a little bit of say in in what gets discussed or written about or talked about in the art world yeah it's funny like coming into it I mean you came into the sort of quote-unquote art world like roughly the same time I did and you know economically if times are going well and people are selling work or whatever you've I think there's a a lot of artists have this feeling like well you just find a gallery and they kind of handle everything they kind of Mm -hmm. promote you and push you and you know a lot of artists have this feeling like they're owed something by galleries like they they they're supposed to do all this work for me Mm -hmm. and I think maybe a lot of artists who are coming up now or like in the recent you know, past feel more of a necessity and a value in doing a lot on their own because you realize how strong and how powerful that can be Yeah. sort of create these relationships and not only that, but create opportunities for each other. Yeah. So it's nice to see that even though, you know, economically or, or, you know, art worldwide, things have gotten pretty rough, which it's cyclical, you know, Mm -hmm. when things dip that artists sort of you know, pull together and, and work to support each other. Well, and I mean, like the, the background to being able to do Regina Rex and why we could afford to do it is because when we started, we started with like a six month pledge mm-hmm. and we were paying about $60 a person. Yeah. And we would, you know, we would clean the space, we'd do the openings, we'd gallery sit. There's a lot of volunteer work that would come. But it's not a whole lot of money. Right. But it was cheap because it was 2009. Yeah. You know, and the speculation had not was, you know, wouldn't really escalate for another three or four years. And so that kind of economic tidal wave of 2008 made space for things like that to happen yeah and things like that are still happening but i don't think that they can happen in as nice a space as we had right you know? <laughs> it's crazy that 2000 2008 is that long ago i know right it's almost 10 years <laughs> jesus it does not feel like that long to where it's been long enough that things have changed since then yeah you know what i mean a lot and you're like, wow, has it been that long? I know. But yeah, time does move yeah. quickly. So let's talk a little bit about your work and, yeah. and how that's migrated. So once you moved to the city, mm-hmm. did you start showing your work right away? Uh, I, I mean, you were showing in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Did that I, help? Yes, yeah. yes. I definitely, I had, I had studio visits with um, some very, very good galleries. Mm-hmm. And I did group shows in a couple of good galleries as well. But there, there were things that were kind of fomenting that maybe gallerists could see that I couldn't see at that time. But I, I did go through a kind of a crisis period after I'd been here for two years where I, I was in this incredibly privileged position of making work, showing work, and selling work Mm -hmm. but I'd kind of come to the end of that series yeah like I was really tired of ringing the death knell of modernist architecture Mm -hmm. you know and geographically it had gotten more complicated where I was going to photograph these places in St. Louis or Chicago and using the images of these dead malls on top Mm -hmm. of the stains and New York architecture is very different it's very bricolage it's it's not designed it's not based on the grid in the same way that the midwest is and things aren't allowed to stand and kind of rot in the way that they are in the midwest because 
property is too valuable. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to become a disaster tourist, you know, kind of visiting Albany or New Jersey, seeking yeah. out these sites. And I did not, I, I just felt like I'd said everything I needed to say about those buildings and that type of work. Mm-hmm. And I needed to change. And at that time, you know, Amy Silman was totally dominating the painting game and I loved her work and I loved the discussion around abstraction. I was like, oh, I felt really inhibited by, or bothered that I was inhibited in my color, that my color had to be representational. I loved lemon yellow and I was like, I can never use as much lemon yellow as I want in the way that I make paintings now. Why can't I do that? Mm And so I had to throw out a lot of things, and I probably threw them out too quickly. I threw out the photograph. Um, I threw out uh, the site, you know, and I started kind of trying to build it myself. And that was kind of the start of a period of maybe three to four years of really searching in abstraction mm-hmm. and it was it was very difficult and I went from having this very good batting average of certainty you mm-hmm. know like 80 to 90 percent I'm sure I can pull this painting off you know or eight or nine out of ten paintings would go out of the studio to like a 30 <laughs> percent batting yeah. average and which ironically in baseball you would be on the pro team if you're 30 <laughs> but in the art but world maybe not, not. yeah <laughs> for painting um so did you have to tune your imagination in a way because everything's coming from scratch yeah but I didn't know how to do that and I didn't know what the work was about and Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to really advance a dialogue in abstraction too I mean I I really struggled with this for a number of years and I got to the point where I'd taken away and taken away and taken away things and then was just doing field painting Mm -hmm. and I remember there was this one painting in particular that I got this beautiful amazing stain like just totally magical otherworldly you know and I couldn't paint on top of it Mm -hmm. like this painting arrived done yeah and and it was a moment of pride but also of crisis because I was and am a mixed language painter. Yeah, you weren't allowed to just keep it on one level. I can't, like, I don't know if I believe in an Angelina painting with just one style, you know, one aesthetic language. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's always in dialogue. And so I was like, Oh God, I got to do something. Yeah. You know, this, this cannot stand. Like I, I'm, I'm not happy doing that. I'm not happy doing this. And I knew I wanted to introduce pattern into the work, but I was kind of holding back like, well, from who or what is it about, trying to understand it. And finally I was like, if you want pattern in the work, the way to do it is to put pattern in the work. (laughs) (laughs) Seems logical. (laughs) So that's when I started kind of hatching and and striating things. Mm -hmm. And also when I started looking at Sonia Delaunay, uh, who had had that uh, show of textiles at the Cooper mm-hmm. uh, Design Museum. And um, so I'd started doing that, and, and that was just about before the time when um, I had my daughter, Frances. I was, mm-hmm. I was pregnant during that time. And then um, I had her, and I kind of took six months out of the studio. And uh, at that time, I, I was happy to monotask. Like, you know, usually my life is complicated by, you know, teaching in Boston and, mm-hmm. you know, Regina Rex and studio practice. And, you know, it's, it's very, very full. And so this six months, I was like only at home and only with Francis. And, and that was the right thing for me to do. And then when those six months were up, I felt very ready to get back in the studio. And I also felt very sure that I did not have the time to fuck around with not knowing in abstraction anymore. I needed something concrete. I needed something that I understood a little bit more because I could only get two or three hours at a time in the studio. Mm -hmm. I can't, like, I, I, I just can't fool around, you know? Not dissimilar to only having one year left at grad school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the clock's Time ticking. Pressure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I came back, and, and the very 
first painting, I, I knew the image that needed to be in the world. And I had to make this painting three times to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did it. And that painting had a pattern. It had a window space. It had a silhouette of a vase that was kind of ended up just being a portal back to the empty canvas, which looks like this radiant light. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had table and it had um, kind of like hanging plants and all the ingredients were there, you know, and it's kind of that painting that I've been working out of in, in different ways mm-hmm. since then. Um, and so the the language of pattern and who I look at with pattern is now kind of more important and more specific than it was in that moment. It started as this aesthetic thing, but now I'm, I'm thinking very specifically trying to draw analogies between um, pattern dyeing and textile design with uh, stain painting, the way both of them use the fluidity of the dye, the way that both of them are kind of dominated by women kind of makers, um, and thinking specifically about women artists who either for political reasons um, or for financial reasons might take design-oriented jobs, mm-hmm. um, you know, or deviate from a fine arts practice into a more commercial practice, yeah. and then come back into fine arts, and then go back into commercial practice. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of multiplicity in their role and their creative output that I see as analogous to what I do, and yeah. that what a lot of women do, and what a lot of people do right now, because that thing about having multiple roles or multiple jobs all artists have to at yeah. this point, but I feel that historically women have had to for much longer. And so I'm, I'm interested in the discussion around pattern as backdrop, as architecture, um, and as this kind of presence that comes through from the other side. Yeah. Do you feel like you've been able to really open that door of color that was closed for a long time? Yeah. And being able to just invent? Yes. Yes. Because the, I mean, the paintings that are surrounding us are pretty, um, you know, there's, there's some pretty innovative and bold explorations of color in relation to representation. Thank you. Yeah. No, light is still a driving force. Somebody told me recently that I need to think about light as a character in my painting, which I really like, I want to think on that more going forward. But the sense of illumination is, you know, comes through color and contrast. And so it definitely is something that I think about a lot. Do you have some favorite artists who do that? For light? Mm-hmm. Um, Not to put you on the spot. Oh, let me see. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's because they're, they're at two different ends of the spectrum. So in, in classic Angelina... Like, I've been talking a lot about how complicated my needs are in painting, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> which is probably <laughs> why I need multiple languages and why I've kind of shape-shifted as many times as I can. So I'm going to give you the two ends of the spectrum. Okay. Um, the first is the the most recent Silka Auto Nap show at Mary Boone, mm-hmm. which was all of those gray monochromes. Mm-hmm. Oh, so breathtaking. Yeah. Oh, my God. God, that show slayed me. Yeah, you know, and I came back and I pro- I made that painting like afterwards. I'm like, I need some gray. <laughs> Reaction, yeah, the gray painting. Um, and so she she's at one end, and I I seriously did be like, you know, I I was like, what if I just take it all away and I just do another show with like that's a monochrome. Maybe it's not gray. Maybe it's lavender because I'm really into purples. But mm-hmm. and then the other end is um is Chris Ophelia. And he's, his paintings are so much about contrast. Yeah. Really bold color and really bold contrast. Except for his dark, dark paintings, which are, of right. course, very dark. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, Turner, for me, is such a great painter of light. Yeah. Those are just about light, you know? It's, yeah. It's about that, well, the sort of phenomenology of light or something washing over you. It's pretty nice. And Mirandi. Although yeah. he's almost more about air than light. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and temperature of shadow, too, yes. in his paintings. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's like a temperature thing going on there, but in a very limited range. I had that same experience when I saw the black and white Picasso show at the Guggenheim. Mm -hmm. Like, I wanted to go back to the studio and not work with color for a year. Yeah. But I can't. It's just not the way I work. So I curated a black and white show instead. (laughs) (laughs) It was, you know what I mean? I couldn't do it myself. So I was like, well, hell, there's a lot of other people. And then I I started with some people. I thought, well, these people would be good in black and white. Their their work. They do a lot of black and white painting. Yeah. But then I was like, well, maybe I should ask some people who work in color and force them out of their comfort zone and see mm-hmm. what happens when they do black and white. I, so it ended up being a pretty interesting combination of all that. But I just couldn't. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I, at that moment, I couldn't do it in my own work. I, don't you love the way that curating can be that other avenue for developing those ideas? I, I love it. And I, if the art world wasn't the art world, I would run a gallery like I would Mm -hmm. I would love to do that there's so many people that I I'm really interested in and in relationships between work and Mm -hmm. thinking of the dynamic between having a group of artists that you're showing and that that dialogue I think would be amazing but it's just a whole having to sell it and then socialize and all that stuff that would be a drag well if you ever want to you know scratch that itch more there are like we don't Regina Rex never solicits submissions Mm -hmm. but we're surprised at how many invitations we've gotten to guest curate things spaces are constantly looking for content um, if you you reach out I think people would be pretty amenable but I, I have so enjoyed like often when I've kind of spearheaded shows at Regina Rex it's been a way for me to start to acknowledge ideas that later come into my work um, that I might not be able to verbalize yet, but I can through like putting other artists together. Right. Yeah. It's it's a real, I don't know. I think part of it might be age. Like when you've been around for a while and then you gather these experiences and you feel like, Oh, I think I could put together a group of work that would be really interesting together. Whereas I think 10 years ago, I wouldn't have it. Yeah. I, I just don't, I wouldn't be able to, to orchestrate that yeah that experience but now i feel a little more um able to do that yeah this is a time thing mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. you're saying you have to have a lot of things going on i think we all have a lot of stuff going on yeah you know i know, I know. and then being a parent on top of all that yeah <laughs> <laughs> not easy not mm-hmm. easy but it sure is exciting you know it's fun there's a lot of stuff going on it's all and and you know it's all good stuff yeah it is like, I, I have no right to complain really about anything. Like, I can. It's not easy what I do. I'm exhausted most yeah. of the time. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, I get to pick mostly, like, what I work on. Yeah. And that's a huge privilege. Are you a daily painter or do you take time in between? Um, I, I am a daily painter. Mm-hmm. But this... Um, good time off leads good to good time on yeah. and I need to remember that so right. particularly you know in the summer like building in weeks away here and there right um, really kind of like then focuses me coming back but I am I do subscribe to that kind of very Midwest blue collar mm-hmm. feeling about like work work yeah. just work more you know? better the more you work <laughs> yeah definitely well, advantage parenting, forced time away from the studio. Yes. Everyone likes to talk about how, oh, it must be so hard, or like you can't, you know, does it really affect your practice? Well, yeah, but you get time out, and when you get in, you really appreciate that time. Yeah, and you become way more efficient, too. You do. Yeah, you don't dilly-dally anymore. No. kind of get right down to it. Yeah, yeah. Are you a music while you paint, or are you a yes. silence or podcast? No, or, music. Yeah. Yeah, talking only, like I love the Brian Lair show, and if I'm doing something mechanical, then yeah. I can listen to language. Right. But if I'm making d- aesthetic decisions, it has to be music. Yeah? Yeah. And do you have go-to, or is it varied? It's varied. Yeah. Depending on the kind of, um, I don't know, emotion. Like, if I need to really think about what's going on in the painting. I'll mm-hmm. usually play classical music. Yeah. Um, that Because it's not 
everything else kind of signifies a time or space in my life. Like it's attached to specific people. Memories. Yeah. yeah. And classical is free of yeah. all of that, you know, so I'll, I'll listen to some piano or Bach or, you know, I'm collecting all of my performers and composers right now. Um, but if I'm just painting mm-hmm. and I know what I need to be doing, then... Um, Black flag. <laughs> that would be my husband's. <laughs> it would have been really funny if it went there. <laughs> you know, it's not Chopin, it's more, you know. Uh, yeah, now, now I go to house music, you yeah. know, or, or there's this really great um, show on FMU every Wednesday, mm-hmm. uh, Dwayne Train. God, he plays really, really Good great stuff. funk and soul. Yeah. yeah, and disco and house. Like, I love his shows so much. Um, that's great. And then if if sometimes my favorite times in the studio are sing-along times, mm-hmm. and then it's like the Smiths or Chet Baker or Frank Sinatra or Louis Prima and Keely Smith. It's pretty like, good. Those are my sing-alongs. Careful, though, you have neighbors. I know. <laughs> <laughs> She's listening to the best of Chet Baker sings over and over. I, I do that too, where I whistle to yeah. a lot of jazz music, uh-huh. and I I think that might drive people crazy. <laughs> but what are you gonna do when right. you're feeling it in the studio? I know, you know, I know. It's one of the best times because those songs I pretty much know by heart, mm-hmm. and so it's almost like a way of occupying the linguistic part of your brain yeah. and operating on the other side. That's interesting. Someone needs to do a study on that. Yeah. Like how you work differently when you're singing as opposed to when you're just in silence. Yeah. It must do something to your brain. It must. Yeah. So is there anything that you have coming up or anything you want to plug, like your website or any way people can see your work? Yeah, work's on the website. Uh, solo show will be next year at Aussie Geisberg Gallery. Um, right now, yeah, everything's just kind of fermenting in the studio. It doesn't so. look like it's fermenting. It looks well, maybe those tangerine skins, but everything else <laughs> looks like it looks pretty fresh. I'm doing a lot of home fermenting right now, so I like the idea of things kind of cultivating and bu- oh, yeah. bubbling. You know, yeah. So that sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for having me over. Thanks so much for coming. It was great this to was see fun. all this stuff and yeah. talk to you. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Okay. is recorded and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. The introduction and introduction music is by Michael Lovett, who records as the musical act Nazca Lines. All other music was written and performed by myself. You can find images and information about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find more about me and my artwork at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.